Uh, good morning. Glad that you are here. Um, we're in a series called Teach Me. And what we asked our church to do this summer was to submit questions, thoughts, ideas, things that you'd like us to address, teach on, maybe things that uh, you, you've been going here for a little while and we haven't talked about a particular subject and maybe it's the last time we taught on it was prior to you being here and you just want to know how we feel about a certain thing or maybe you're in a situation where you're addressing something and you want a little help uh, from us. So we asked our church to participate in that. The response has been really great. Around 100 people, 100 questions uh, were submitted to us. But out of that, it really comes down to about 15 things, really. So it's people from you know, all different walks of life. Nobody really talking to each other about what the questions were, but really we're all living in the same place at the same time. And so a lot of the same questions. So over the last several weeks, uh, the staff, while Chris and I were out on uh, vacation, was dealing with some of that and they did a great job with it. When we came back last week, uh, I picked up the subject on uh, heaven and hell. And the questions were just simply, uh, they had to do with, you know, um, what will heaven be like? What can we expect? Will we know people? Um, you know, it's some really interesting questions, and theologically speaking, it was great. The one on hell is interesting, um, and a lot of it had to do with, with this question, why don't churches teach on heaven and hell anymore? And in particular, what is up with, why, aren't, why isn't the subject of hell ever brought up anymore? And so I, I thought, I, I know we have taught on it, but it's been several years since we taught on it. And just real quickly, aren't you glad that it's been several years <laughs> since we taught on it, right? But I thought, you know, is that just like somebody who um, their field of view is narrow or are they speaking from knowledge? So I, uh, I just started looking at different churches, not just in our area, but across the U.S., and uh, looking at what they've been teaching over the last several years, because most churches do it like we do, where if you go to their website, you can see uh, what they're teaching on currently, and you can look at their archives and see what they have been teaching on over the last several years. And uh, sure enough, at least for churches that I'm aware of and churches that I checked, I couldn't find a church that had taught on hell or heaven recently. And that was interesting. So started digging on that. Like what's behind that? What's the reason? Are people just like uh, denying it or what's going on? Here's what I think it is. I, this is my hypothesis, right? It's unless it's proven otherwise, this is what I think it is. I think that um, within the last 15 to 20 years inside of, um, of most Protestant churches has been a movement called seeker-sensitive movement, right? And the idea there is simply that we're throwing the doors open. We're being very evangelistic. We're asking the people that attend church to invite their friends, bring them in, let them hear the gospel, which is right. It's good. It's true. Uh, and I, I think that we're seeing a lot of people do that. Evangelistic churches in the last decade have done phenomenally well, despite the fact that when you hear reports about, you know, that there's more people today who don't believe as compared to 20 years ago, I, I think if you take all denominations, that might be true. But in particular, if you look at most Protestant denominations and evangelical churches in particular, they're actually growing right now. And so um, what, what are those churches doing? Why aren't they teaching that subject? And here's what I think it is. Because churches have really become to pay attention to, you know, we're asking people who never uh, go to church normally, who haven't heard the gospel presented, I think that we're really careful then to say, okay, 
what would you teach a person who's not exposed, didn't grow up, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't hear these things? What would you teach a person who, it may be their only opportunity to hear the gospel. And I think what churches have done, and they're being careful about it, is they're saying, okay, let's just teach the message of salvation. Let's just teach the message of the life that we have in God. And it's a true message, it's a right message, but it's not the full counsel of scripture. So the full counsel of scripture simply is this, that Jesus, um, he taught about a number of different things. And here's what I found this week when I was studying, Jesus had more to say about hell than anybody else in the Bible. So that if we claim to be Christ followers and we're a church that bases everything we do on the fact that we're honoring Christ, we don't get the luxury of only pulling in the things that we think people want to hear about. We have to teach everything that's in scripture, Right. And so that's where we find ourselves today. So uh, I, I um, in studying, there have been two authors outside of the Bible that have had a tremendous impact on me in this series that we're doing. Um, C.S. Lewis, familiar with the name, right? Lived uh, really in the um, first part of the 20th century, very famous Chronicles of Narnia. But what he wrote theologically, uh, a lot of his writings are deep. They're really, really good. And uh, C.S. Lewis actually had some things about hell that he wrote that I uh, had picked up on. And then um, the other one that really uh, I recommended the book is Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. And uh, Randy, I think probably today, living today, might be the author today that is um, maybe the most profound in speaking on heaven and hell. And both of those authors had a, uh, a true impact on me. But here's, here's why I'm bringing their names into it. They both had these two quotes that I included in the beginning of my message. And I want to read them to you because I want you to get where, uh, where a pastor's heart is when it comes to teaching on the subject. So the first one, uh, this is from Randy. And Randy wrote, if I had a choice and if scripture wasn't so clear and conclusive, I would not believe in hell. Believe me when I say I don't want to believe in it. But if I make what I want or what others want the basis of my belief, then I'm a follower of myself and of my culture and not a follower of Christ. That is true and that is right. Today, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy to forget or conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. It's not some fire and brimstone church speak designed to frighten people into giving money or going to church. It's Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. And then C.S. Lewis said this, and it's just so close to what Randy Alcorn wrote, but it was written probably a hundred years prior to this. And C.S. Lewis said this, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power, but this sentence. But the doctrine of hell has the full support of scripture and specifically our Lord's own words. Therefore, after reading that, I realized I think that most pastors just simply, a pastor's heart, you love people. You care for people. You don't want to frighten people or twist people or harm people. Everything that you do is designed to encourage people and increase people. Yeah. And so I find that sometimes we'll take those feelings, right, and we'll elevate them above the way that Jesus did it. And no pastor should ever do it his or her way. You got to do it Jesus's way. And so that's where we find ourselves today in talking about this. So I'm not going to just give my opinions about this. I'm going to read the words of Jesus when it comes to this subject. Let his words stand and not really add a lot to them other than just to comment on a couple of things. 
But I thought I would begin this way like I did last week in talking about heaven. And by the way, if you didn't hear the message, go to our website. Everything that we teach is archived there. And you should listen to that message because I think talking about heaven is something that we should have our minds set on even while we're living here on this earth. But I began in the message last week talking about four myths about heaven and then taught on the reality of heaven. Today, I'm going to talk about two myths about hell, and then I'll let Jesus' own words, facts about hell, speak for themselves. But let me, let me say this and begin it this way. Uh, in my mind, I think that the enemy's strategy when it comes to the subject of hell is to do one of two things. And the first one simply is to make it where most people deny that there is such a thing as hell. Most people today, if you ask the average, like they'll believe in heaven, but will not believe in any kind of a hell. And the truth of the matter is, theologically speaking, if there is a heaven, then there has to be a hell. If there is a reward, then there has to also be a judgment. And so if you look at the full counsel of scripture, it is there. But I think that the enemy's strategy is simply to get people to deny that there is a hell. No, of course not. We don't have to worry about something like that. Then I think that if people do believe in hell, the next strategy is to take hell and belittle it. Make it something that's, that's, that's not stinging, that's not troublesome, that's more funny or to give the wrong idea about it. He does the same thing with heaven, to deny that there is a heaven, but if you happen to believe in heaven, then he makes heaven, the impression of it, it's so boring. Why would you ever want to go there in the first place? And that's not what heaven is. That's not what scripture teaches. So let me give you two myths about hell that kind of fall into culturally. The first myth is this. Hell will not be like a funny comic strip that you can pick up and read in the paper or online. And I just pulled three of them out. And look, I think they're funny too, but it does do what I said. It makes hell, it takes the reality or the sting of hell out of it. It makes it more funny. So this is the devil talking to, a, I guess, a new recruit. And it says, oh, we got rid of the hot coals years ago and switched them over to Lego pieces. Yeah, that's uh, somebody's idea of hell right there. And it makes it cute and it makes it kind of funny. Uh, people, do you like uh, Larson's comics, yeah. The Far Side? Yeah. I love the far side. I think he is funny, but he's probably one of the more famous ones who takes the idea of hell and waters it down to be something that is innocuous. And so this one has got some kind of a goofy guy standing in a line, walking by the devil, and he turns to someone and says, hot enough for you. You must not like Larson very much. Yeah, it's, a, it's an acquired taste. And then here was the next one right here. And if I could do this in a Scottish accent, I would do it. So this is Scotty from the Starship Enterprise talking to the devil using, I wish I could do it. Satan, Satan, it's the main mega furnace. She's losing power and the temperature is dropping fast. And I'm not sure that I can hold her together. And it would be funny if I could do it in. But the idea simply is that you take a subject of something that is very serious that Jesus never joked about, and he also didn't water down. And then if you can't get people to deny it, then make it where it's innocuous, make it where it's funny or make it where it's harmless. And then it just kind of takes the, uh, the seriousness away. Uh, I don't have these up for you to read but I did include them. I'm going to read the references to the scripture. And I know that some of you take notes so that if you're taking notes right now, or maybe you're listening to this and you have the opportunity to stop it and you can get a pen or a pencil, you might want to write down these other references uh, where Jesus plain speaks about the subject of hell. And this is just from Matthew's gospel. It's in all four of the gospels and in all of Paul's writings. 
Matthew 13, 40 through 42. Matthew 22, verse 13. Matthew 24, verse 51. Matthew 25, verses 30 and 41. And the only reason I put this in here is that I know some of you like to go home and see whether or not I'm taking it out of context, to see whether or not I'm on solid footing when I say what I'm saying. And I would encourage you, look this up for yourself. Read it for yourself. It's there. We just tend to ignore things that we either don't understand or that we're uncomfortable with. So the first myth about hell is that it will be like a funny comic strip and it's just simply not true. The second one is this, that hell will be some gigantic party. When I was 17, um, I was a very rebellious teenager at 17. So much so that I actually moved out of my house, moved states away. I was going to become emancipated from my parents' authority. I was going to run my life my way, do my own thing to the point where I had done that. And at 17, not a Christ follower, living the opposite of everything that I stand up here and stand for today, living my own life, doing my own thing. Uh, myself is God in my life. I remember going to a party and at the party, we were doing what most people do at a party. I wasn't in my right mind and I was enjoying that at the time. And the person, this is going to kind of date me, but the person who was putting on the party had this incredible stereo system and ACDC had just come out with a new album called Highway to Hell. And they plugged in the, it was a cassette. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, ask on the way home and you'll, yeah. Plugged in the cassette, turned it up loud in this mega stereo. And at this party full of people, who literally were not in their right minds. Uh, and if you know the song, you can think of the guitar chord that it starts with. And it's hard driving. And I liked ACDC. I remember going to a concert and getting a t-shirt that said, I like ACDC and I'll fight anybody who says different. <laughs> Don't wear that shirt unless you like to fight. That was not a good shirt. And I remember being at that house and he turned that stereo on and Bon Scott, who shortly after this died, saying these words, don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do. Going down, party time, my friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. I'm on the highway to hell. Yeah, I'm on the highway to hell and I'm going down. And I remember singing that song and when the party was over, not in my right mind, walking home and it's probably two or three in the morning. And I'm still singing that song. It just was like that worm that doesn't die in your head. You know those songs? And I remember not being a Christ follower, not being full of the Holy Spirit, not doing anything that is what I'm doing today. But I remember in the middle of walking home, singing those words, I'm on the highway to hell. And the Holy Spirit, it had to be the Holy Spirit, stopped me and said, John, do not agree with the words of this song. Stop me. Till this day, when that song comes on, I turn it because I will not agree with the words of that song. I'm not going down and hell is not a big party. Yeah. That's good. And I think it just stands. The only reason I share it with you is it just stands to reason that if the enemy can't get us to believe that it doesn't exist and we do believe that it does, then he will minimize it by making it some comic strip funny place or he'll put it in the context. Well, if you're going, you're going with your friends and it'll be a big party. And that is nothing like Jesus said. So I want to give you five facts about hell according to Jesus. 
By the way, let me just say this. I've had to say it in every service. Uh, I had a real wrestling moment this week in that I knew last week, I even said last week, if you came back, you were expecting me to teach on this. I told what I was going to teach on, but Pastor Jake reminded me we had baby dedications this week. (laughs) And so I actually said, you know what? I will postpone what, either let's move the baby dedications a week or I'll move my message a week. And then we came back together and we said, you know, the Lord knew. And there we go again, trying to change it because we want people to be okay. And you know, the truth of the matter is something that most people never consider this. Everybody in this room, all of humanity will stand before God and give an account for your life. It's called the judgment. But do you know that pastors go through the judgment twice and you'll only go through one time? Did you know that? I'll go through it the first time to answer for my life. And the second time, according to scripture, teachers and pastors go through it and they have to answer for what they did with your soul. And how can I stand here and be afraid of you knowing that someday I'll give an answer to God? And what a lousy answer it would be to say, God, I was afraid of what people would think. So I love you and I want you to like me but I want to hear that from God more than I even want to hear it from you. So five facts about hell, according to the words of Jesus, Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. This is an allegorical um, story, simply meaning that was there uh, a real Lazarus, a real wealthy man? Were, Were these two people that Jesus knew of that existed? No. This is a story that Jesus uses to teach truth. Now, because it's an allegory, you could go, well, then none of it's true. And that's not the way to look at this. Jesus simply uses this as an illustration to teach a greater truth. And he's actually talking about himself at the end of the story. So it begins this way. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, that in and of itself is not the problem. That's not why this guy ended up in hell. That's not what the issue is. This is the issue. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Don't go to the next one yet. Just hang in there. So the reason that you've got to look at this and understand what's going on is that at this man's gate, whenever he went in and when he went out, he had to pass Lazarus. And when he would pass Lazarus and see him, he was not moved with any compassion whatsoever. His whole life was lived for him. He enjoyed while other people suffered. Now, it's not works that get you to heaven, but in this case, it's talking about an attitude where he rejected all moral goodness and lived only a life for himself. Can I just tell you something about hell real quickly? You don't get to heaven accidentally and you don't go to hell accidentally. It's a choice that you make. People who go to heaven will not like rub their eyes and goes, I can't believe I made it. If you make it, it's because you chose correctly. And if you go to hell, you will not rub your eyes and go, how did this happen? I think that when you stand before the Lord in the judgment, whenever you get asked this question, how could a loving God send people to hell? I don't believe that's what uh, scripture teaches. I think what it teaches is that when we stand before God, he will reveal to us all the times he was pleading with us to accept his grace and his mercy and all the times we rejected it by choice. One of the things that Jesus teaches about hell, it's a place where the worm doesn't die. What does that mean? I think it's the thought, the conscious awareness that you could have chosen something else and you rejected. 
what God had for you. So I want you to get that idea as we head into this. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died. And look at the difference between these two people. The angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Do you see a difference between the way these two are treated in the afterlife? In where? Hades. Hades, hell. Where he was in what? Jesus is teaching. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in, in this. Look at me real quick. Somehow in our day, people tend to think that all the teaching on hell, the fire and the agony and the pain is something that men have added to it in order to bring fear to people. But this is not men who are speaking. These are the words of Jesus right now, teaching about the reality of hell and what hell will be like. He uses the word agony, torment, and agony three times in this story right here. But Abraham replied to him, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers real quickly. This guy's in the afterlife, but his knowledge, his understanding, his memory hasn't been wiped. He is fully aware of where he is. He is fully aware of what he's suffering. He's fully aware of where Lazarus and Abraham are. And he's also fully aware that in the other life, he still has five brothers who haven't passed this way yet. Yes or no? He's fully aware. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. I want you to see this last part. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Who is Jesus talking about right here? Himself. 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 So even though it's allegorical in its story, it's truth because Jesus is talking about himself in this and what people experience in the afterlife. So five facts, uh, five facts about hell according to the words of Jesus. Number one, hell is a place of endless torment. It's not a place where the switch is turned on and off. It's not a place where you talk to the devil. It's not a place where you laugh with your friends. It's not a place where everybody gathers together and commiserates their, their misery. Hell is a place of torment. According to Jesus, there's fire. According to the own rich man's words, he's in agony, and it's agony without end. Endless torment. A place where it doesn't stop. There is a, um, a pastor counselor that I know and that I love. And just so that you know, I'm not talking about one of the counselors we have on staff. This is not an allegorical story about one of our counselors that I'm trying to say something. Uh, this is a, a counselor that I was on staff with 
uh, years ago when I was a younger pastor. And we got into the question about what hell would be like. And he said to me the very same thing that I think a lot of people in the world say. How could a loving God allow someone to suffer in hell? And I don't think that God is his choice in any way, shape, or form to send anyone to hell. I think that God is constantly pleading with us to find life, to choose life, to ask for his mercy, and to receive his grace. And so this counselor told me, he said, I think that people who go to hell might suffer for a little while, but eventually I think that that fire is extinguished. And I said, where do you get that from? And he says, I guess it, to me, it just sounds like that would be the best thing that could happen. Yeah, except that's not what the Bible says. It talks about a torment without end, something that you experience every day. According to Jesus, the second fact about hell is that you'll be fully conscious when you're there. You don't cross into the afterlife and then your memory is suddenly wiped of every thought and conscious uh, experience that you had in this life. According to this story, he knew who he was. He knew where he was. He could see where Abraham and Lazarus were. And he knew that they were in different places and that they were in enjoyment while he was in uh, torment. And he also was aware of his family that was still alive here on earth. In that place, you don't just become a disembodied spirit that suddenly doesn't recognize anything around you. You will know. And that may be one of the worst things about it. You will know. You'll be aware. Fully conscious. By the way, I think this is interesting. Lazarus was a contemporary of the wealthy man. They saw each other when the wealthy man would come in and out of his house. So they knew who each other were. So when the wealthy man looked across the chasm and he saw Lazarus, of course he recognizes him, but he also knew who Abraham was without any introduction. How would he know who Abraham is? Abraham lived a thousand years before this guy would have ever existed. And I think it's the proof that when you're in heaven, you will know, every, you will know your family, you will know your friends, you will know your ancestors, you will know your grandchildren that you may have never met. You will know. Yeah. And you will be aware. It is not some place where you suddenly become like it's in a mist and I don't understand what's going on. You will know. You will be fully conscious. You will fully feel. You will fully think. The third fact about hell, according to the words of Jesus, is that you retain your memories. You know. You will know when you stand before God and your life is revealed. And I don't know what this looks like. I don't know how the Lord will do this. But I think that when we stand before him on judgment day... I think that somehow it will be revealed to us all of the thousands of times that he was crossing paths with us, looking for opportunities to offer to us life, not death, blessing, not cursing. From the very beginning of humanity, you have Adam and Eve put in a garden. God puts all the trees in the garden that they can eat from, except one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one tree because if you eat of it, you will surely what? You'll die. And what do they do? They run to that tree. When Joshua took over for Moses, he stands before Israel and he says, today I set before you life, death, blessing, cursing. And then he says, therefore choose life. Why do we have to be encouraged to choose life? What is it about us that leans towards choosing the wrong thing? Yeah. And I think that this thing where we stand before God and people go, how can a loving God send people to hell? I don't think God 
does that. I think the revelation before him is all the opportunities that you had to receive grace and mercy and you rejected it. And so you go, Pastor, when? When did I ever do that? Right now, God is pleading with you. I sit before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose Jesus. Choose him. I'm not asking you to choose church. I'm not asking you if you like me. I'm not asking you if you understand everything there is to know about the Bible. Choose Jesus. Choose life. Don't choose death. Over and over, I think it'll be revealed where God was pleading with you. Where he was sending different people. So maybe you look at me and you're like, you're just not the one I can receive it from. Good for you. I'm not the only one who talks to you then. There are people all the time that he is sending in your path situations and opportunities. Jesus himself says this in the book of Revelations. I stand at the door of your heart and knock. And if anyone hears me knocking and opens the door, I'll come in and we will have fellowship together, relationship together. Even right now, he is knocking at the door of your heart. Right now, it's him pleading with you. You'll retain all of your memories. It won't be wiped from you. You won't forget. And it will be revealed to you where God was pleading with you. The fourth fact about hell, according to Jesus, is that you'll long for relief and you won't be able to find any. This man was so, so in agony. And it was causing such thirst that he asked, send Lazarus just to dip his finger in the water and touch my tongue to relieve this thirst that I have. You ever been in that place? Chris and I, uh, this one of our early vacations was to the desert with me saying, we don't need to bring water. We'll be okay. <laughs> it's lucky we're married after all these years. And that's in this world, in this life where you can find water and you can have that thirst, that thing quenched in you. This is a place, man, where you will long for relief. You will not be able to find any. And if you go, pastor, man, that is, I, I don't like the message. I don't like what the message says. I don't like what it stands for. I, I can't believe that Jesus would teach something like this. Why would he teach something like this? So I think our philosophy is that we all st- sort of start out in life in a neutral place spiritually. And then the decisions we make as we go through life lead us up to heaven or down to hell. And that is bad thinking. Let me tell you where we all start in life. We are sinners We all are away from God and our destination is hell. Jesus interrupts that so that we can go to heaven. That's the truth. You don't start out someplace neutrally and then your decisions lead up or they lead down. By the way, when we come to the end of the message and I offer you the opportunity to choose life, I'm not asking you to choose heaven. I'm asking you to choose Jesus. Heaven is the byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. The good thing is not heaven. The good thing is Jesus. According to Jesus, the fifth fact about hell is that you can't leave. When Abraham told the wealthy man that between us and you is a chasm and you can't get from here to us and we can't get from here to you. That's it. It's locked. I said this last night. I'm not sure that people fully understood what I meant. If you're a believer and you love Christ and you're looking forward to the day of his return, that's all good, that's all fine. I mean, it's the right heart, but you've got to understand something. As soon as Jesus returns, everything's locked in that position for eternity. Right now, before that day, people have the chance to hear. And if you hear this message and it doesn't bother you, something's wrong with your heart, man. 
I showed this video uh, of Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller. Penn is an evade, uh, avowed atheist, just uh, not only not a believer, but against God and against the things about God. But I showed this video, maybe you remember six, seven, eight months ago, and in it, uh, it recorded him talking at the end of his show. He allows people to come up and seek an autograph, and there was a person who came up who was a Christian who said, listen, I just want a second to tell you that God loves you and that Jesus died for your sins and that God has chosen you to experience his grace and his mercy. And what Penn said was, he said, I don't believe what the guy had to say, but I respect the fact that he had enough courage and that he believed enough in what he was saying that he was willing to risk my rejection and my ridicule to tell me what he believed to be true. And then he said this, which just stuck with me. He said, the reason that the world rejects most Christians is that most Christians, if they really believed that there was an eternity with God and without God and that hell was a reality, if they really believe that, then how can they walk through life and not tell people that it's true? And so I preached this message and we live in a time and a place where our hearts are just so like... They're constantly bombarded by everything and we can hear a message like this and somehow reason it away. But if it's true, it should bother us that there are people who need to be told about Jesus. While I was studying, I think I found maybe the one scripture that pulled it all together for me of what hell will really be like, right? Everything that Jesus said, I believe to be true. But Paul wrote this in 2 Thessalonians Chapter one, verse nine. Look at this real quick. They will be punished with, what's that word? Everlasting. everlasting is a long time. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. And this part I want you to see. And shut out from the presence of the Lord. Look at me real quickly. So Pastor Donnie, when he gets done leading worship, and he was right. I'm not picking at what he said. He was right. He's 100% right. But let me give an addendum. He said, that every one of us, whether we're believers or not believers, have lived every day in the presence of God and we've never, ever lived outside of his presence. And so if you're a believer, you know how precious that presence is. But let's say that you're here and you don't believe in God. God is so good to you and he loves you so much that even if you don't believe in him, you still have his, his presence around you all the time. And you don't know how precious his presence is. You don't know the joy and the peace and the goodness that it brings to your life. You want to know what hell really is? Hell will be the first time that people experience life without any presence of God whatsoever. Yeah. And it can't yeah. be changed. Shut out from the presence of God forever. Hell will be the reality that there is no presence. There is no goodness. There is no future. Hell might be the most boring place ever because it will never change. By the way, hell won't diminish the reality of heaven. Hell will be a footnote, a crack in the sidewalk. The overwhelming goodness of heaven will go on for eternity. But the reality of hell, Jesus taught it. Every Christmas, Chris and I watch Christmas Carol. Anybody else in here got that little four of us? No Christmas Carol. I know you watch it. In fact, I'll prove it to you. Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three spirits, the ghost of Christmas, the ghost of Christmas, and the ghost of Christmas. Okay. In the future, he's visited by all these spirits trying to soften his heart, 
trying to get him to see the error of his ways, trying to get him to repent. And the very last one, the ghost of Christmas future, the only thing that really touches Scrooge's heart is Tiny Tim. And he looks and he sees a picture of a crutch without an owner. And so he asked the spirit, if you remember, he says these words right here. Are these things shadows of what may be or shadows of what will be? And the spirit says this to them. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. Listen to my words right now. If you don't let God alter your future, you will die. You will die. And you will be without him for eternity. And there is no in-between. And there is no way for me to soften that. And even if you don't like my words, I'm not saying it from an evil, ugly heart. When I walked off the stage last night, Jake and I said this to each other. So he goes, how are you doing with that? Are you okay after preaching that? And I, you know, you can't believe the weird things that happen in a pastor's heart when he has to say something difficult. And I said, I'm okay, but man, I, I don't want to put anybody in a funky place. And Jake goes, wouldn't it be great to be an evangelist that flies in, preaches the message, and then gets on a jet and leaves? In one way, that's true. But when you're a pastor... <laughs> Dude, I've been here for 23 years, and God willing, I'll be here for, well, I don't know how long, but many, many, many years more. So anything I say right now, I have to come back next week and deal with this. You know, pastor's heart cares about what's being said to people and how they take it. And I just have to tell you the truth right now, man. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, by Jesus, you'll die. Let me switch the whole message. Let me tell you what God's heart is, what his will is, what he wants for you right now. If the rest of the message you hear and theologically speaking, you're just like, ugh. Let me tell you the best part of this. 2 Peter 3.9. This is God's will for you. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. His son understands slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to what? but everyone to come to repentance. God's will is that no one would perish. God, I'm telling you right now, when you stand before him, it will be revealed all of the opportunities that God sent to try to tell you, choose life, choose me, choose mercy, choose grace, over and over and over again, to reject that. Maybe my favorite scripture the one that I try to work in so many times, the one that culturally is used at most sporting events, John three sixteen. Look, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not but can have eternal life. You're not choosing heaven, you choose Jesus. And the byproduct of that is heaven. Jesus was actually asked in John 14, what is eternal life? And he said, eternal life is that they would know you, the one true God and your son whom you've sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. And then you live out that relationship in eternity called heaven. I don't know how to be any more clear about it. I'm glad (laughs) that we're not in a 52 week series on hell. I'm not 
struggling for words. I don't have that problem. Between each services, I just told the Lord, I don't want to get to that point and then shrink back. Give me courage to stand in front of people and to tell them the truth. It's not with a hard heart or with anger. It's not from some twisted place in me that wants you to do something. It's really for a heart, for your soul. The real job of a pastor, I tend your soul. It's my job to watch over it. How's your soul? I'm not asking you right now to choose what you think about the history of the church, what you think about Jubilee, even what you think about me. It's not the question. The question is, what do you think about this Jesus that I'm presenting to you? The same one who did all the miracles, the same one who died on a cross for you, the same one who took your place so you could have his place, that same one also taught this very sobering and serious message. What do you think about this Jesus? What will you do with it? Pray with me. So Lord, in this room are people from such diverse backgrounds in life. I've got older people and younger people, married people and single people. I've got men and women, boys and girls. I've got wealthy and I've got poor. I've got people that are spiritually mature and I've got people who are brand new in an understanding of faith. People from all different places right now that God, we're all in the same boat though. Every one of us need a savior and it's you. Jesus, you said there are only two roads. There's the wide and broad road that many find and it leads to destruction. And then there's the narrow road that few find and it leads to life. Church, which road are you on? And if the Lord were to open your eyes and show you that you're on the wrong one, do you want to do something about it? So my question is, not what do you think of my teaching? Not what do you think of church? Not what do you think of religion? But what about Jesus? I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, and I exhort you, plead, beg with you, Choose life. Choose Jesus. And the very words of Jesus, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any person hears me knocking and opens the door, you have to open the door. He knocks, but you have to open the door. Then he will come in.
and the two of you will have a relationship. And I don't know how to make it any more plain and simple. Do you need a relationship with Jesus? Do you need God's mercy? Do you need his love? It doesn't happen accidentally. It happens on purpose with a choice. Now, your decision, really, it's not for anybody else in this room. It's between you and between God. But I'm a facilitator right now. And I'm facilitating an opportunity for you to say yes. And so while I'm talking, if you feel Jesus knocking, you know he's speaking to you. You know. You know in your heart. It doesn't have to be defined. You know. Will you say yes? Will you open the door and will you invite him into your life? Now I'm going to ask you to respond to that. But before I do, I want you to understand, I'm not going to embarrass you and I'm not going to make you stand up and I'm not going to parade you any place. No one's going to come to you. I'm facilitating a decision right now, a chance for you to say yes. And so if you feel him knocking right now and you say, Pastor John, when you pray, remember me today. I want the Lord in my life. I want to open that door right now. I say, yes, if that's you, slip your hand up right now. It's Pastor, pray for me. I see you. I see you. Yeah. So keep it for a second. I'm just scanning as I go across. No one else is looking at you. I see you. I see you. See you. Okay, well, last time, anybody else just pray for me today, Pastor? You can put them back down. Okay, now listen, my words are not extra special because I'm a pastor. God is not a respecter of persons. I'm just simply the facilitator in this moment. I'm leading this. And so I'm going to pray, but my words won't get it done. It's you in the sincerity of your heart when you say this to God that he hears. And last week, I just led all of us through this prayer, all of us to participate. And I want to ask you to do that again. I want you all just, just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I invite you into my life. I say yes to you. I want you. Be merciful to me. Forgive me. Embrace me. <laughs> Thank you for choosing me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you meant that, I promise you, God heard the simplicity of that prayer. And right now, the Bible says, in the book of life, your name is written. I don't know what that'll look like on that day. I don't know if it's an actual book that's opened. I don't know if it's something that's more to help us understand it. I don't know how that'll work exactly, but I know that it says your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. And I believe that to be true and literal.